for the first time ever the opportunities that have only been available to the 1% of people who live in San Francisco would now be accessible to the giant U.S. economy and that we could be the very first to invest in this. We really thought that it was important to develop a new stream of talent that wasn't the same thing that everybody else was selling anyway. You're listening to episode 65 of Powder Keg Igniting Startups, the show for entrepreneurs, leaders, and innovators building remarkable tech companies in communities outside of Silicon Valley. I'm your host, Matt Hunkler, and today we have two incredible guests from the Midwest. Our first is Chris Olson, who is a partner at Drive Capital. Now, Drive Capital is an amazing venture capital firm based in Columbus, Ohio. It's particularly remarkable because the founding partners moved from Silicon Valley, where they were formerly partners at Sequoia Capital, and since moving to the Midwest in 2013, they've met with over 7,000 entrepreneurs. They now have a very impressive portfolio of companies, including Root Insurance, Duolingo, and many, many others that we're talking about today in this episode of Powder Keg Igniting Startups. And I really enjoyed the conversation with Chris Olson because he understands not just how to invest in startups, but how to scale and grow startups outside the valley. We talk about a lot in this episode. We talk about the pillars of successful investing. We talk about some of the new and innovative technologies and how to take a risk in the right way on the right technologies. Uh, We also talk about the Midwest and why it is attracting a lot more attention from investors, why there are more and more growing startups in this area. Uh, And then we talk about all kinds of other things, especially when we bring on our second guest, who is Mike Seidel, who is the co-founder and COO of Work Here, which is a remarkable startup based in Indianapolis, Indiana. And we talk a little bit about how to grow and scale teams, which is what this startup is all about. And Mike has an incredible past Uh, because he previously worked back in the 90s on the first ever internet job board. Of course, he's got now decades of experience working in the space, and the opportunity with work here is really interesting, and we get into some interesting discussions. But first, let's kick things off with our conversation with Chris Olson. Chris, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. And are you calling in from uh, Columbus, Ohio today? I am in sunny Columbus, Ohio today, yes. <laughs> we're, we're in sunny Indianapolis today, so I'm, I'm, I imagine we're talking about the same sunny. There's a, there's a hint of sunniness. It might be sunny at some point. <laughs> that is a very sunny day for, a, for November in the Midwest. But you, you haven't always been in the Midwest, is that right? No, I, I moved here about five years ago, and, but I, I will tell you it's, it's been the best move I've ever made. Why do you say that? So often in your life, it's easy to get up and, and keep doing the thing that you started doing. And very rarely do you have the opportunity to make a dramatic change in, in what you're doing and have that change result in a much larger impact. And that's really what, what's exciting about what I'm doing now compared to what I was doing in Silicon Valley, where, you know, look, I, I love the Valley. I think California is wonderful and it's, and it's amazing. But I think the level of impact that an individual investor out there might have on the ecosystem is hard to measure. I think by contrast, when I look at the lack of, of VCs who are here, I think it has given us such an opportunity to be a far more impactful investor and to work with companies here that are working in these industries that are, that are so massive uh, that we have the opportunity to really 
really change things and, and do so at a, a fairly large scale here. What were you doing back in the, the Valley? Is it, is it the same as what you're doing now at Drive Capital or are you really kind of taking a fresh approach now that you're in the Midwest? Well, so I, I had the good fortune working at, at Sequoia Capital and the firm is probably the most successful investment firm that I'm aware of, at least in, in the world. Absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful training ground. And you know, I had the opportunity to see and work with some of the very best entrepreneurs, folks who are founders of, of public companies today. And in doing that, you, you get exposed to this model of investing. There is a formula that Sequoia has perfected. If you think about it, they're the only venture firm that I've seen that has actually been successful in generating best-in-class returns over five decades, which is in and of itself spectacular. But then on top of that, they've done that across multiple product lines and in investing in early stage companies and growth stage companies in public companies. And then they've also extended this onto an international platform where they're investing in China and in India and all these places. And in all those places, Sequoia's products are the very top of their performance. I think the benefit in doing that is we've been able to learn that model. But now that we've decided to since leave and really focus on this overlooked corner of the world, we have the opportunity to apply this formula for investing that makes companies more successful. And we're able to do it now in what is the fourth largest economy in the world. And we're doing it here in the Midwest where there are all the raw ingredients for successful startups, but there are very few dollars going around relative to those opportunities. So We've had to make some adjustments here and we do some things differently than we did at Sequoia. But I think fundamentally what we're doing is we're taking this approach of investing in founders who believe they're building multi-billion dollar companies and then surrounding them with the resources that they need such that they can develop into CEOs who have these giant product lines that are, are serving customers in a variety of different places and ultimately building companies that, that are changing the way that the world does things. I would imagine that playbook is something that Sequoia really developed and fine-tuned over time. And you were able to absorb a lot working there with some of the world's best entrepreneurs, world's best investors. Uh, what were some of the lessons that you learned over your period of time there with Sequoia that you still see yourself applying today in how you invest in startups and, and coach entrepreneurs as they scale and grow here in the Midwest? Well, it's, it's far more than I could fit into a podcast. Uh, sure. I mean, it's, a, it's one of those things that, that you really, I, I wish there was a book or there was a class that could be constructed that you could put it into so that I could teach people how to do this stuff faster. The reality is it's an apprenticeship business. The only way I've been able to learn how to do this is to have the opportunity to go in and start investing in companies and make a whole bunch of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I think that in the, in the course of doing that, have been able to, to really learn by actually living through these things. I think it's, it's one of those things that's, that unfortunately you can't just write down. There are a couple of core pillars, though. I, I think the, there are two that are, are really the biggest things that, that differentiate their approach. Number one is really being proactive and we replicate this at Drive. So at, at Sequoia and, and as typical Silicon Valley firm, you'll see about 4,000 inbound opportunities a year. Entrepreneurs reaching out and saying, hey, I'd like you to invest in our company through whatever channel, through a lawyer or through um, info at drivecapital.com, whatever. And we have a similar volume here at, at Drive, about 3,000 companies inbound per year. Now I could fill my calendar and I could my partners could all fill their calendars with all of those appointments. But the problem is I'd really be taking this pattern, this kind of filter and just applying it to every single meeting. 
and looking for the company that has the greatest amount of momentum. It's very, very hard, in my opinion, to be able to really have a perspective or a point of view on an industry if you're investing like that, because you're just, you, you're going to meet with what happens to email you. By contrast, if you are very thoughtful and, pro, and, and you're really programmatic and you're outbound in your efforts and you're very deliberate in focusing in a theme that you want to invest in, and then you go out and you proactively identify the best products in the space, now you have the opportunity to have a perspective on an industry. And that point of view, that perspective gives you an opportunity to build experience. And through that experience, you can now establish a critical understanding as to what the best product is, who the best team is, and which company is going to have the best opportunity and the best shot at being successful. So that'd be, that'd be lesson number one. I, I think the second lesson is that you've really got to have the ability to stand alone. And you've got to be comfortable being uncomfortable in a point of view that's, that is controversial. So these things seem like they're, they're so popular today. But you know, if you look back on, um, on whatever the technology is, whether it's social media or it's you know, now cryptocurrency or it's uh, ride sharing or, or whatever, at the, at the time, the first investor made their investment into these companies. It was very unpopular. And, and people, a lot of people would dismiss it as, as foolish. And over time, these, these trends have turned out to be really w the thing that, that changes the way whatever that industry is, is, is done. But it's not, you know, it's, it's a very lonely place to make those investments early on. And it's even lonelier for the founders of those companies to, to build those companies. And I think it's critical to have that, that conviction in having the willingness to stand out there and say, I, I realize everyone thinks this is foolish. And by the way, it might prove to be foolish, but that's okay. I've done the work, I understand what's going on, and I'm willing to be wrong here. Because if I'm right, the implications of this are, this could be a massive, massive company. So you have to be really willing to go first and know that what you're feeling from an intuition standpoint, given your experience in previous industries, seeing this play out differently in, in other verticals or in similar business models, to some degree, obviously, you have to do due diligence. You have to understand the founder's backgrounds, the model, and, and all of that. But at some point, at least to be a leading VC that, that is going to pick the first of the next wave of unicorns in a new industry, you've got to be comfortable with trusting your intuition a little bit. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's intuition, though. You know, intuition is it's kind of like the, you know, how people define luck as the, it's the culmination of of hard work and timing. I think it's similar, you know, when you're investing in these companies, I think it's, it's not so much intuition so much as if you do the work, if you're proactive, if you're, if you're outbound, really identifying these themes, these trends, and you're talking to everybody that you can get your, your hands on, whether they're PhDs in a lab, they're product managers of big companies, you're going to get a data set that mm. it becomes clear that you, you can start to establish a, you know, the, the median or the mean of, of an industry. And then when you meet the company that's you know, two standard deviations above that, it's crystal clear who's going to win. You know, it's, it's not like, oh, well, this company, they're 10% bigger than this other company. And that's why we should back them. That's not, it's not usually how it works. Usually how it works is you're, you're in an industry, you're muddling around, and then you meet this company. And they're doing everything, not just 10% better, they're 10x better than everybody else who's out there. And when you see that, now you've got to do whatever you have to, to be a shareholder in that company. And so I think it's all about, it's about doing that work up front. And I think it's about doing your own work and being independently minded and, and not worrying about what other people might 
might say about it. You've done the work, you've assembled the information Now you can make your own judgment call. I know you've got a number of amazing companies in your portfolio, including companies like Duolingo and Root and some really great Midwest rising stars. I mean, I would say it's even beyond rising stars, right? Like these are companies that are, that are doing great and they're scaling. Is there an example that comes to mind of one where you saw this trend coming, you were able to look at sort of the data and say, this is where we're making the bet and, and here's why? When we first started Drive, one of the markets that we were most excited by was it was a technology around unstructured data. And the idea that you didn't need rows and columns and databases anymore, you could use NoSQL and, and other technologies to stitch together graph databases. That was kind of the catalyst that we were like, okay, now that this technology is possible, what's really exciting is you can take thinner data sets because you can and stitch them together with, with thick data sets because you now have the, the capability to very quickly integrate data and then take it from data into intelligence. And then we started looking at the implications of this and felt like, you know where this would be most valuable? This would be most valuable in the insurance market where you're trying to price risk based on all of these disparate variables. And they've really been consolidated over time into a handful of things that matter, but they're not things that are direct correlations to what the risk is. So for example, we started looking in the insurance market. We were like, well, the insurance companies, what they would love about this is, imagine you're not using your FICO score to predict whether or not somebody's gonna get in a crash, right? I mean, intuitively, that doesn't make a lot of sense that your credit history indicates how good of a driver that you are. But we, you know, we instinctively, as, as venture capitalists, we looked at this and said, well, we don't wanna build an insurance company. That would be, that'd be a hard regulatory burden for us to, to carry. Hmm. So rather than do that, we went and approached the insurance companies and we said, hey, we are thinking about starting a technology company that takes unstructured data and enables you to ingest all these other things so that you can price risk. And we got a very consistent set of feedback from the insurance companies, which was, guys, this is the future of insurance. This is amazing. This is spectacular. But we'll never buy it. And we were kind of shocked. We were, I don't understand. I thought you just said this is the future of insurance. It is, but you're, what you're talking about, this is, this is Star Trek. And where we are today is we're de dealing with a cobalt system that's still green screens and a lot of our pricing models. And so, yeah, we'll get there, but it's going to be a decade from now. And we walked out of the meeting and said, man, well, within a decade, I think we could probably build a new insurance company. But we had already done the work and gone around and talked to all these insurance companies. And we had met with young people inside of these companies that were super smart and folks who were super technical and that were excited about this problem. And so what we were able to do is we looked out at the landscape. At the time, there were no, hardly any insurance startups. There were some, but they were really like lead gen startups. Nobody was underwriting the risk itself. And nobody was taking a, the approach of integrating mobile technology into all these things. And so we didn't find a company. And so instead of investing in one particular business, we, we found these, these founders who were, they were really, you know, they were 10x better than anybody else. And they were, you know, what that meant at the time is they were 10x more enthusiastic about this. And we felt like that was an opportunity to back a small team and to see what they could do with this premise of, uh, of, of taking unstructured data to better price risk. And then with that, we, we funded them. We started the company in, in our office with the team. And then they took it and they really ran from there. I mean, they, they took this very, this kind of spark of an idea and then they put it onto mobile devices. And now uh, that company today is, is Root Insurance. And it's a company that'll they'll do over $100 million in, in revenue this year up from uh, about $4 million last year. And, you know, they've got this data model that keeps getting better and better and better. But I think at the time, if we looked around and said, well, 
you know, let's look at the other VC backed insurance companies. The answer would have been, well, there's none there. Like we had, we had to be willing to do this and you know, our lawyers and everybody told us, well, I don't know you guys, this is, you're going to have to bear all the regulatory burden of all this stuff. You're going to have to find a way to ensure that um, you're compliant with all these things. And, and it was, and it is a headache and, and there are a lot of challenges to it, but we kind of were willing to do that because we believed that if we got it right, then this would be a, not a, not a billion dollar company. This is a company that's in a $200 billion industry. And if we got it right, this could be the next Geico, the next progressive, this could be the next 40 or $50 billion company. And, and you know, we're, we're not there yet, but we're on a, on a, a happy trajectory. That's really exciting. And I, I love the product. I love the company. Uh, it, it's cool to see it scaling here in the Midwest. And, you know, I know the Midwest has some deep roots, uh, no pun intended, for you. This particular business is something that probably could not have happened without a VC fund like Drive behind it to fuel this. Because, I mean, jumping into the insurance industry, this is not a bootstrap it until you hit the growth metrics that Midwest angel investors get behind and then slowly kind of grow those metrics and then, you know, get the, the coastal VCs into this. Um, so it's, it's awesome that there was a resource like drive capital to fund something like that. Uh, at the same time, I know this wasn't a purely altruistic play on your part. I know you saw the opportunity here in the Midwest uh, to start a VC fund five years ago, really uh, ahead of trend. And of course there's things like Steve Case's rise of the rest. Now there's other groups like uh, high alpha that have sprung up out of exact target here in Indianapolis um, and more and more VCs are seeing this opportunity, but you were really early on this trend. Uh, what was it that you saw in the Midwest uh, back when you're in the Valley working at Sequoia that made you say, I, I need to get out there and this is a big opportunity to jump on? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting and also a um, kind of one of those unlikely stories where, you know, if you told me that this is what I would have be doing, you know, uh, seven years ago, I'd have said you're nuts. I, I think the thing that was exciting though was, at the time, Sequoia had been on this, this initiative to go around the world and to open up partnerships and expand into other geographies and to get into India and to China uh, and into Israel and Brazil and now the Global Growth Fund, all these different places. And this, by the way, is a firm that when I first got there, it was not unusual for us to pass on a company unless it was within the three area codes of uh, of of the office. So, you know, within a bicycle ride of the office. So we were looking at all these geographies and at the time we were looking at, um, we were looking at Turkey because Turkey had a really high GDP per capita and we were contemplating, should we open Sequoia Capital Turkey or not? And I was, uh, you know, that's where the serendipity came in where my partner, Mark, he was friends with John Kasich. Kasich gets elected governor. And then Mark, if, if we were on a video, you'd see I'm, I'm doing the, uh, you know, the rabbit ear finger thing, quote, discovers, <laughs> discovers Ohio. And this is, you know, Mark had really never been here. He'd only lived in California his whole life. And I was out looking at a company for Sequoia, a, a growth stage company, and decided to catch up with Mark over dinner. And in the process of, uh, of having dinner, we started talking about what he's seeing here. And what he was, was finding was there were a lot of entrepreneurs, way more than, than one would expect. And started to really identify that this is not, this is not a desert where there are no entrepreneurs. This is, a, this is a massive place where there are lots and lots of founders. They just are, um, they're under-resourced compared to other places. And that that was the opportunity. So 
I started looking at the data and he had kind of had this kind of gut reaction what was on the ground because I just never thought about it that way. Like I could tell you the GDP of Turkey, but I didn't know like what is the GDP of Ohio or what or Indiana or you know the Midwest. Like I, I didn't know. And suddenly I started looking it up and the numbers just blew me away. You know, this was not the Rust Belt. This was the, at the time, it was the fifth largest economy in the world. It's now the fourth because it's been growing faster than other economies around the world. It has almost 25% of all of the research done in America is done at these Midwest companies and universities. It graduates more engineers than any other corner of the world. You know, here we are like you know, scraping and scrapping to get engineers in Silicon Valley. And it's like, look, Ohio State and, and these giant Big Ten schools, Purdue, everybody else, they're graduating you know, almost a thousand engineers a year per school. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a order of magnitude more than you're gonna get out of Stanford. And the opportunity set was, if you could take these workers, if you could take these raw ingredients, and you could bring this approach that we could do in the Midwest in 2012, what Sequoia did in 1972 in California, when everybody said, you can only do this in Boston, Don focused exclusively on, on California. And that was the idea. And we kind of looked at this and felt like, you know, if we're wrong, then it'd be embarrassing, but, and we'd have to go back and, and, you know, we tuck tail and do all that. But if we were right, the implications of this were dramatic. If we're right, then this meant that for the first time ever, the opportunities that have only been available to the 1% of people who live in San Francisco would now be accessible to the giant U.S. economy. And that we could be the very first to invest in this. And that if we could do that, we could build an investment platform that could enable these entrepreneurs to run faster, to pull out the friction so that they could reinvent their companies and reinvent their industries. And we could do this for the next several decades. And doing so would redefine the entire U.S. economy. That was, that was just too big of an idea. That was too impactful of, of an opportunity to pass up. And as we kind of dug into it and continue to, to live through it today, feel like there is, we are just scratching the surface of opportunity. And you know, I love the fact that other folks are raising funds and that they're investing here because you know, the amount of capital relative to the opportunity is, is completely lopsided in, um, and needs to, be, needs to be remedied. I think it's happening. I think it's going to come, but it's, it's never going to happen as, as fast as we want. But I, I believe that you, what you're going to see is that all of these Midwestern cities are going to be redefined. Their economies are going to be redefined by the startups that are, are disrupting and creating new industries around them. Um, and, if, and I think that's, that's the piece that, that gets super compelling. I couldn't agree more, Chris. And I, I could dive way deeper and probably talk for an, another hour on that topic alone. But I wanted to shift gears here and bring on one of those entrepreneurs. You mentioned there are lots of entrepreneurs in the Midwest. Um, there's one in particular, I've, I've known him for years. He's been part of the powder keg community probably since the beginning, back when we were meeting in the, the back rooms of, of bars and uh, wherever we could find free space. Um, he's got a, a really awesome story uh, going all the way back to he and his co-founder of his new company built like the original job boards on the internet. He's now currently working on a startup in the talent space. And uh, I'm not going to steal any of his thunder. So I would love to just welcome the co-founder and COO at work here, Mike Seidel. Mike, can you hear us? Absolutely. And Matt, it's, uh, it's always great to be involved with, with anything you're doing. I think when I started mm -hmm. uh, going to your events, um, I think they were still called hackers and founders. That has that uh, been a while, man. That, you're, you're an OG back in like the 2010 days. 
Yeah, yeah, no, and and I've always really believed in what you're doing, and and you know, just kind of to dovetail on uh, what we just heard. Um, if you look at Indianapolis, it's a very different city now than it was 10 years ago. And a lot of it has to do with with startups. And we've had a couple big exits here. And it's just uh, it's it's changing the fabric of our city. Well, can you tell us uh, about the startup that you're working on right now? A quick elevator pitch on work here. What we're doing is helping companies uh, deal with the biggest issue that they're facing over the next two years, which is uh, finding people to keep fully staffed. And uh, the way we do that is we start by helping uh, companies find talent that live closer to work. So we're leveraging geography uh, and, and GPS on mobile to help identify talent and then reach out to that talent, engage, and then drive that talent in. We're, we're really different in the talent space than a lot of things that are out there right now because almost everything is AI or some form of machine learning concatenated with chat or something like that. And we uh, knew from uh, working at Direct Employers, myself and Rick Worley, who's the, uh, the guy who wrote Monster's Job Board uh, back in the day, we, we knew that uh, location actually was really critical and that our workforce uh, really isn't well optimized for location. We have a lot of people that are driving past a place they could work and probably get paid more doing the same job than they're driving to. And it's an especially big Midwest problem where you have all these uh, automobile cities. And so we started off thinking location was gonna be important. We launched about three years ago. We thought we were gonna be kind of Yelp for jobs. We learned quite a bit over the last uh, couple of years and it really emerged to a new model. Um, we've been executing on for about a year and uh, we're, we're starting off by leveraging the existing ad networks that are out there on mobile where we're able to identify talent um, with three meter precision and then go in and uh, use targeted ads to reach people that are, are actually probably working at a job today where they could be doing the same job or a better job uh, closer to home. And that's been effective enough that we picked up clients like Uber. Um, yesterday, we just signed Carvana. So we, we uh, just keep growing. And um, the problem we're working on, I think, is the big uh, existential question for a lot of companies. How am I going to get people to fill the orders that we're getting? I love the opportunity, Mike, and uh, love that you're, you're tackling it with work here. Um, I wanted to open up uh, questions from Chris. Well, we yeah. won't dive into to financials necessarily or anything that you might not disclose out of closed doors, but um, yeah. would love to give Chris the opportunity to learn a little bit more about your business and allow us to think how a, a VC at Drive Capital thinks. Sure. Sure. Well, look, I, I, love, the, I love the premise. I think if, if I look through our portfolio, we have a, you know, a couple of examples, not a couple, we have a lot of examples of, of folks now um, tens of examples where we've had talent from the coast that have relocated to run uh, a chunk or, or come work at our, our companies. But of the 2,500 people who now work in our portfolio company, the vast majority of them were people who were sourced locally. And I think one of the things that we've identified is there are, there are so many more people that are eligible to be your, your partners and be your, your workers in your, in your company that are right in your backyard than there are people that you need to ro relocate. And so while you might have a couple of people you need to relocate, that's the minority. The majority of the time that you've got to find folks in your backyard. So I think it's, I like the concept a lot and think it's a, a wonderful uh, trend that you're, you're tapping into. Well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, back to what you were saying earlier about people thinking you're crazy. Uh, we started this thing and the kind of the AI craze was the thing. And, uh, 
what we're doing, yeah, sure, there's some machine learning and AI involved in it, but but location is a very different thing than uh, a lot of what the AI guys are looking for. It's been uh, it's been challenging, but uh, I think that, that sticking to it's paying off for us now. First question for me would come back to just the market and trying to understand tech space. There's there's a lot of companies. In this. It's a very crowded space, noisy space. And as you look out there, how do you you carve out the white space that you find is is truly differentiated from everybody else who who's out there? Well, we uh, decided to focus uh, first on line workers and, and what most, most uh, HR tech companies focus on are engineers, managers, and that sort of thing. Um, we decided we'd focus on the boring side of the business first. So we, we went out and uh, got really good at helping companies recruit the next great package handler and the next great line cook and that sort of thing. Um, so that we, we really understood uh, high volume employment and were able to really deliver the goods to companies that needed to hire 200, 300 people at a time and in a certain area. So, so we did that a little differently and then we've grown into being able to recruit, uh, you know, the, the higher end title software developers, engineers, managers, and all of that. Um, the thing that's been fun is location. The thing that, that was kind of the common thread through everything we've done has, is just as important to a CFO as it is to somebody that's making 15 bucks an hour. So you started in a, a segment of the, the labor pool that didn't have necessarily a, a LinkedIn profile, right? So I think- Absolutely, a, yeah. Fair yeah. Thing. A lot of these HR tech companies have been just repackaging LinkedIn profiles in one way, shape, or form. Right. We really thought that it was important to develop a new stream of talent that wasn't the same thing that everybody else was selling anyway. So the whole idea that we could go find ways to locally source uh, talent and target them and, and advertise to them that didn't count on LinkedIn or, or Career Builder Monster or Indeed was really important to us. And, and so um, it was kind of that that drove us to choose, let's go after this different segment of the labor force. And it turned out to be a really good choice because 73% of the labor force is the, uh, the market that we targeted. And because we targeted the big part of the market, um, that, that really gave our, our company some good upside, helped us raise our, our seed round. We raised about three and a half million. Congrats. That's awesome. So you mentioned you've got companies like Uber who are customers now and some of these bigger logos that you've got. How do you get those folks? What's the, what's the pitch? Well, the pitch is real simple. Um, if, if you're higher local, you're going to have happier employees that are less likely to turn over. And for Uber, what intrigued them was the idea that, that we could recruit people that were more likely to keep the Uber app on when they're sitting in their living room um, and would be more likely to pick up and drive a fare. And then for our other customers, um, really the story is, um, you know, I was talking to a, a software development company in East LA and uh, they, they're interested in finding people that are commuting uh, across to West LA and trying to target them. And, and so we found this whole idea of, of geography and commute times and all that to be just, just a really powerful, uh, really powerful tool. But, but back to the market, um, you know, by choosing that, that lower end of the market, we had less competition for our first three years and it, it really prepped us for where we're at today. Now, intuitively, I, I, that all makes sense to me. Do you have any data yet or on the, the performance of how employees who have used your platform to identify jobs or employers who've used your platform to identify employees have either reduced their churn or been able to find a more effective workforce or, or found, found that the folks they're getting are easier and, and better? Believe it or not, one of the toughest uh, job titles to recruit for um, is a cosmetologist, and that's because there's not very many of them. Um, uh, great Clips, uh, there's a Great Clips franchisee that, that 
started with us back um, four months ago and uh, asked us to go uh, find them licensed cosmetologists. Uh, at the time we got to, got them as a client, they were 84% staffed. Each uh, cosmetologist that they, they hired uh, increased their revenue by $2,500 a week. And we were able in three months time, uh, you know, to take them from from 84% staff to 98% staff. So that made a big difference. And then we went back and looked at our, our customer base and we found, um, did a little bit of research with a few of our original customers and found that um, in one case, this is across 87 retail stores, um, the people that had uh, stayed at that company the longest, um, and, and that's over five years, um, lived within two and a half miles of work and the people they hired out of work here were fitting that profile exactly. So they were staying at a higher rate. Um, so we found that the actual supposition that location matters a lot, it really makes a difference. Um, a lot of our customers have told us that, that they feel like the people they're hiring from us are about 50% less likely to turn over in a given scenario. Um, even a couple of our investors, one uh, that used to own 200 Qdoba stores, uh, when they invested in us, uh, they invested because location was the prime driver in their hiring process. In fact, they wouldn't hire people that live more than five minutes away from a store. That's amazing. Now, if, if I'm, if I'm great clicks or I'm, I'm Kudoba yeah. and I'm seeing this stuff, I would imagine that now you've kind of got the ability to the, use the overused term of, of landing and expanding. Have you, have you seen that where if I'm a great clips owner and now I'm, I'm using you guys now, I'm now I'm every great clips is using me. Yeah, what's really exciting is, is you know, Great Clips, we started with them, uh, would have been May, and that was one franchise operator, and now we're up to uh, four franchise uh, four franchise operators are now in, and uh, their, their corporate uh, recruitment team is recommending us to other uh, franchise owners because we've been able to deliver the goods. And in, in our industry, I think you, you, you kind of nailed it when you said there's an awful lot of noise and there's honestly just an awful lot of stuff that's just uh, me too and knockoff and it's really nice to have a product that's different and and uh, delivering the goods in a way that other things just aren't mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. now i know we're short on time but you know talk to me a little bit more about the the team and the, and the background and how you guys have uh have worked together in the past yeah so um the, the whole thing, the whole idea with work here started, uh, I was working for an organization called Direct Employers, and that was actually uh, uh, a guy named Bill Warren and a guy named Rick Worley. They, uh, Rick Worley was the programmer that wrote Monsters Job Board. Uh, Bill Warren was the guy that uh, um, was the business guy that raised the money and founded it and um, ended up, uh, believe it or not, Monster.com started here in Indianapolis as an online career center and was purchased by uh, TMP and got renamed monster. So uh, they couldn't raise money here in the Midwest back when they started it and had to move. But uh, so I did, anyhow, working at direct employers, Rick and I learned from a lot of the employers that location was a really big deal, especially to the companies that hired the most people. Um, when we left, we brought in a, uh, another partner because uh, neither Rick or I were real, really good at uh, a raising money and B um, you know, I'd run some small businesses, but I'd never really, you know, run a venture funded startup. So we brought in a guy named Howard Bates who had uh, um, recently helped a company called Smarter HQ raise about 30 million in uh, venture capital and had uh, built a company and exited uh, back in the uh, 2000s. And so we f thought, you know, hey, this is the team, the three of us make a pretty good team to make this thing go. And uh, it's been fantastic. We, we've got some, uh, Rick's a real innovator and has, has 
his mark is is on the entire uh, you know job board industry. You know, he, he built it. <laughs> and then uh, having Howard on the team has really helped. In fact, it's something that I tell other founders a lot is, hey, if you're not good at something, get another co-founder who is. I want to make sure, Mike, uh, you have a chance to ask Chris for a piece of advice. You know, Chris has obviously helped coach uh, many, many uh, entrepreneurs uh, through the portfolio, uh, his own entrepreneurial endeavors as well. Um, if you had kind of one question for him, whether it's about work here or whether it's about scaling uh, a company, you know, beyond Series A in the Midwest, uh, do you have a question for him that he might be able to shed some light on here on the show? Yeah, the, one of the challenges for for companies in the Midwest is you have this this uh, you know the angel angels and all that they're very very revenue focused and then it seems like when you get into the, the best venture capital companies tend to be much more more growth focused. How, how do you how do you you kind of balance that as a as a founder? How do you how do you make it how do you make it compelling uh, to go from that angel angel funding to to the next level? When we started Drive, one of the very first meetings that we had a investor who was evaluating us said, look, I love you guys. You've got great track records. You know what you're doing. This is wonderful, but I don't believe in the Midwest. So if you change your strategy and you focus in Silicon Valley, I'll back you and I'll invest a hundred million dollars into your fund. And we came out of the meeting and Mark and I talked about it and we said, well, that's, that's interesting feedback. I mean, it didn't make sense to me. I mean, if, you want to invest $100 million in a VC in Silicon Valley, you should go put that into Sequoia or whoever else. Like I wasn't going to out Sequoia, Sequoia. And, you know, we kind of had this moment where in the meeting, we were reflecting on it where it, I, I wanted the $100 million. I wanted the invest. I wanted to tell the investor what they wanted to hear so that they would say yes. But doing so would have really, you know, forced me to really whipsaw our entire strategy. And, and you know, job one was kind of build the company, Right. And, you know, thankfully we, we stuck to our guns and we said, look, we're, we're focused on the Midwest because that's what we think the opportunity is here. And, and I think in, in that moment, I learned um, the, the lesson of, look, you're going to, there's going to be investors who are out there. They want to invest in all sorts of different flavors of, of startups. And yeah. the reality is you've got to pick your business that's right for your customers. That's right for, for your market. And that sometimes that means getting to cash flow positive. Sometimes that means going for growth. Um, there, it depends on your unique set of circumstances. You've got to stick with what you are. You've got to be who you are as, as a company and you've got to wait and be patient until you find the investor that, that shares your vision. Sometimes that'll be a VC. Sometimes that'll be an angel. But I think the entrepreneurs get, it gets frustrating for folks where you want to raise the money and, and what even gets harder is if you start changing your strategy to, to tell the VC or to tell the investor in the room what they want to hear. You know, I, I, my advice is, have faith in yourself, believe in your vision for your company and just work until you find that investor who, who shares it. Because then what you will find is, is this perfect match and this perfectly aligned incentive of the investor who believes in your vision. Now you can build exactly what you're excited to go and build. You'll be more enthusiastic as you start to delve into the product, start to try and recruit people. Um, that becomes this infectious thing that you can then build momentum and, and scale with. Um, and if you do that, then I think you'll be far more successful than if you, you're trying to find a, a pitch that works for just who's in the room. 
Love that feedback, Chris, and really appreciate you uh, taking the time today to not only share your story, but share some feedback um, to, to Mike. Mike, thank you so much for, for dialing in here in uh, Indianapolis to share what you're working on and work here. I, I hope we can uh, have you back on the show again to share some of the progress you've made. Uh, and it's so cool to see how work here is growing right here in the Midwest um, and, and getting investment from the angel community in the Midwest and beyond. And it'll be interesting to see what you do next in that next stage of growth. If you want to check out some of these companies, make sure you uh, check out the show notes. Uh, I'll make sure uh, we mention some of the social profiles here and, and link everything up. Uh, Drive Capital has been investing in the Midwest for the, the last five years, plus uh, have an amazing portfolio of companies. I highly recommend you check those out just because there are some really innovative companies that you might not know about because they're not always uh, on the front page of, of TechCrunch right away. And so you, you can kind of see the, the early ones earlier on just by following a little bit of their, their portfolio page. So thank you both for being on the show, Chris and Mike. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for the show today. Thank you so much for listening. You can head on over to powderkeg.com to get links to all the people and resources mentioned in this episode, including social links. I highly recommend you follow both Chris and Mike. Uh, while you're there, make sure you check out some of the other resources and some of the interviews as well that we've done in the past here on Powder Keg Igniting Startups. And to be among the first to hear the stories about entrepreneurs, investors, and other tech leaders outside of Silicon Valley, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes at powderkeg.com forward slash iTunes. Catch you next week on Powder Keg Igniting Startups. <laughs>